Well, thank you, choir. Thank you, Dr. Hurd. What a wonderful service. Thank you to Rod uh, for doing the liturgy. It's always nice to have someone else do it and see how it's done. Uh, <laughs> I'm like, oh, that's what I should be doing. But I knew Rod would be dressing nice, so I had to compete. So I put on my suit for today uh, so as not to be outdone. Uh, yes, thank you. Uh, well, uh, Welcome, everybody. It's my pleasure to be delivering the message this morning. Uh, and I had a little bit of time to do it because, as uh, many, many of you, of course, recognize me up here from being the liturgist, but I do a little moonlighting as a high school teacher, too. Uh, and that means that I'm on summer break right now. So I have a little bit of time. But uh, as they say, you can take the teacher out of the classroom, but you can't always take the classroom out of the teacher. And so we're going to begin this morning, if you don't mind, if you can humor me a little bit, with a little bit of literature. Uh, it gives me a chance to keep sharp, keep the ring rust from gathering. Uh, and we're going to start with some Shakespeare. Uh, this is a part of a soliloquy. I'm already sounding a lot like an English teacher up here. A soliloquy uh, by a character from a very famous play that you've all heard of, Romeo and Juliet. Uh, now, most of the general plot line on Romeo and Juliet you're probably familiar with. We know that the setting is the city of Verona, and the major conflict in Verona is that there are two warring families, the Capulets and the Montagues. Uh, and of course, the, the main story will be that Romeo, who is a Montague, and Juliet, who is a Capulet, will fall in love even though their families are feuding. Feuding to a violent degree. If you've read Romeo and Juliet or seen it, it opens with a huge, deadly uh, mob uh, violence between the two families. But we're going to look at a part of a uh, soliloquy from a character named Friar Lawrence. Friar Lawrence is kind of the man behind the scenes in the play. He's behind all the machinations of getting the two kids together and trying to figure out what to do when things go wrong. A lot of people blame Friar Lawrence for everything that goes wrong, uh, which is to a certain degree fair. But we're going to look at uh, the first thing uh, that he says. We see, we see him opening up in this scene in his garden, probably at the church or a monastery, looking at some of his herbs and flowers. He's a gardener. He's an herbivorist. I think that's a word. Uh, and he's kind of a, a little bit of an... Uh, amateur scientist with them. So I'm going to read this to you, and this will kind of jumpstart us into our topic for the day. By the way, the second word you're going to hear is mickle, which nobody ever knows. Mickle means a great amount of something. So here we have Friar Lawrence just by himself contemplating the human condition while surrounded by warring families, uh, a town characterized by conflict and strife. And he's looking at his flower. Yes, I did get this from the St. Andrew's Garden. Uh, and he says, Oh, mickle is the powerful grace that lies in herbs, plants, stones, and their true qualities. For not so vile that on the earth doth give, but to the earth some special good doth live. Nor aught so good, but strained from that fair use revolts from true birth, stumbling on abuse. Virtue itself turns vice being misapplied, and vice sometimes by action dignified. Within the infant rind of this small flower, poison hath residence and medicine power. 
For this being smelt with that part cheers each part, but being tasted slays all senses with the heart. Two such deposed kings encamp them still in man as well as herbs, grace and rude will. And where the worser is predominant, full soon the canker death eats up that plant. Now, if you didn't catch it, he's not just talking about plants here. Instead, he's looking at the duality of man. How, like some plants, humans can have the ability to do great beneficial things, but can at other times be full of dangerous poison. The two opposed kings that encamp within man. And the reason I open with this is, number one, I like reading Shakespeare. Uh, but number two, I think John is doing something similar in the second half of chapter three in the letter of 1 John. You see, John is discussing a similar conflict within humanity. He's discussing how in humanity can be found a poison of hatred that goes back as far as the fall, as far as the book of Genesis. But then he goes on to assure us that we will be rescued from the effects of that poison by the inbreaking love of Jesus that entered the world in power through his incarnation, sacrifice, and triumphant resurrection. And before we get into that, let's read the scripture so you can take out your Bibles, or we might have them on the screen, we will. Uh, I'm going to read 1 John 3, 11 through 18. Uh, so starting in verse 11. For this is the message you've heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. And we can pause there uh, because I want to go back to the beginning of that section so we can start to break it down. You see, we get the main message in that first verse in verse 11. It's what, you know, to be an English teacher again, what we call a topic sentence. The topic sentence is your argument at the beginning that tells, you, uh, tells your audience what you're going to prove. And John says this, For this is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. And that's what he wants to show us in this section. Interestingly enough, though, the first thing he goes into is evidence to support that argument is the first time in human history when that rule was broken. He takes us all the way back to Cain and Abel, the third and the fourth person to ever exist in the Bible, and we see the first time that this command of loving one another was broken. 
He says, Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Now, this is an old story, one of the oldest stories. Again, the third and fourth human. And what do we see? We see this sin already taking hold. And that's why I call this a primordial poison. Primordial, going all the way back to the beginning, the presence of this poison is already taking effect in the story of Cain and Abel. It's the flip side to what John said was the message from the beginning. This is the temptation from the beginning that we see in this story. And I'd like to look at that story a little bit as well. So we're going even deeper in the text as I'd like to read to you the account of Cain and Abel all the way back in Genesis 4. So, of course, we know that Cain and Abel are the first two sons born to Adam and Eve, Cain being the firstborn. Uh, And then we get this description of them in Genesis 4, uh, verse 2. Now, Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel brought an offering, fat portions from some of his firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Now let's pause there for a second. This is a mysterious story. It's not just old, but it's mysterious. We don't exactly know what was wrong with Cain's offering. I read different commentaries, and of course different theologians have their favorite interpretations. It must have been, you know, his attitude uh, has something to do with animal sacrifice. But it's all, to the end, it's pretty much a mystery. We don't know why God refused or rejected Cain's offering. Uh, but accepted Abel's. Now, the most interesting thing I got, though, from this research was a lot of pictures of Cain holding a bunch of nice vegetables and looking angry. In fact, I brought a couple. There's one. You can see he looked, this is almost like he's like, what? Look at my bananas. Uh, But he's getting, and then it gets worse. Another picture there. Now he's getting really mad. It looks like he has some celery or a watermelon. Oh, the carrots and the cabbage. So, I mean, it looks, he looks like he's living a healthy life. I don't know what's wrong here. And then another one we have, yeah, he's looking at askance over it. Uh, Abel's looking happy. There's the celery. And then finally it ends with, he's rejected, and he's very sad. I, doesn't it make you feel a little bad for Cain? So we don't know why this was a rejected offering. That's a mystery. But we do know how Cain reacted, and that's what John is getting to here. The story in Genesis continues. Remember, it says, So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. And we see his reaction. 
we see that primordial poison start to take effect. You see, the conflict at that point to a certain degree is between God and Cain, or even Cain within himself. But he takes it out. He takes his pain out on Abel. This is the primordial poison. This is the human versus human conflict. This is seeing your brother or sister, not as family, but as opposition. This is a poison that Cain gives into when he kills his brother. And John takes us back to this moment, not to say, remember that story, let's never let that happen again, but to show us that that is a part of the human condition that's been around since the beginning. And that it continues to be a poison affecting our world. In fact, he doesn't just, John doesn't just say that's something that was wrong with Cain. He says this, going back to verse 12 in uh, John, 1 John 3, do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And then he goes on to say, do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. And when he makes that connection between Cain and the world, we see that the way of Cain is the way of the world. The way of conflict, the way of hatred is the way of the world. Theologian John Stott in his commentary breaks this down pretty nicely. He says, quote, it may be helpful to summarize the teaching in this passage about hatred and love. Hatred characterizes the world whose prototype is Cain. It originates in the devil, issues in murder, and is evidence of spiritual death. There's a connection John's making. The way of Cain is the way of the world. Whenever I talk about the world, as a side note, I, I love this quote by Richard Rohr. I just have to share. He says, and please understand that in the New Testament, the oft-used word world doesn't refer to creation. God didn't make a bad world. The best interpretation would be the system. Man-made systems that have developed, infected by this primordial poison. They happened in Genesis. They're happening in the early church that John was talking to, and I chose this because it's happening today. We live in a world of conflict. The way of Cain, the characteristics of Cain, still characterizes our world today. There are different characteristics we see in Cain's fall here. First of all, remember, he saw Abel not as a brother in this moment of pain, but as an opposition. He saw himself in competition. Do we live in a competitive world? Phil's laughing. We, I think we do. I, I was teaching a class, this is a freshman class, so they're young, 14 years old. Uh, I was teaching a class, in, it's called an academic support class. These are uh, classes for kids that are struggling in school or struggling with the idea of school. Uh, and uh, their counselor came in one day and said, as motivation for you, let, let's have you go online and try to find some motivational quotes, kind of some mantras that you can uh, uh, say to yourself to kind of you know, help as inspiration. And some of them, you know, they, they, they all did a good job. Uh, and, uh, but there was a little bit of a theme I started to see repeated. I want to read you just a couple of the quotes and see if you can see that theme that the kids were getting. They go online and say, what should inspire me? And we get stuff like this. You just have to want it 
more than anyone else? Or what do you do when a thousand people want exactly what you want? You've got to outwork them. And all of a sudden, this picture is being painted of your fellow humans in your community as what? Competition for what you want. And this is being, you know, ingested as truth, even from a young age. And of course, there is an element of healthy competition in society, but you always want to be a little wary of it. Because what does competition often result in? My dad will like this because it's another C. Conflict. When Cain saw himself in opposition to Abel, he then became in conflict with Abel. According to an article for Pew Research, Michael Dimmick and Richard Wyke write, Americans have rarely been as polarized as they are today. What's unique about this moment, and particularly acute in America, is that these divisions have collapsed onto a singular axis where we find no toehold for common cause or collective national identity. You see, my fear is that we see a, word, a world developing based in conflict between brothers and sisters. We see people choosing sides. We hear politicians, news channels, talk radio hosts telling us that the other side is the enemy. Those people that believe that are the enemy. And our job is to fight them. It's a view that we're going to see come into harsh opposition to what John has to say later in this text. And finally, a third characteristic of Cain in this world. We have competition, we have conflict, and then we have corruption. Corruption that leads to systems of oppression. When Cain led his brother out to the fields, lying to him, he corrupted that relationship. We have a lot, a lot to be thankful in our culture, but we cannot ignore the presence of injustice. The corruption that's produced racial prejudice, Extreme wealth inequality, homelessness, and mass incarceration. These are the trademarks of the world that Cain represents. These are the effects of the primordial poison of hatred. These are the trademarks of the world, but as Paul said in Romans chapter 12, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. But these are deep-seated problems. You'll hear people say, what are we going to do about it? This is just the way the world is. You can see it's been there like Genesis. Since Genesis, humans have lived in conflict. Now, if I titled, if I ended there, the title of this sermon would be The Poison. And we'd all leave and be very sad. And we'd go, boy. No wonder he wears so much black. He's a little, <laughs> little rain cloud. But that's not the title of this sermon. The title of this sermon is not the poison. If you look at your handout, the title of this sermon is the antidote. What is the cure to poison? An antidote. This came to me last week. 
this word antidote and kind of became the schema for this uh, sermon. Uh, and I want to say it originated from a deep reading of the scripture. I even want to say, you know, originated from me really getting into Shakespeare again. But instead, it came from another work of literature called Dogman. <laughs> Some of you are laughing because you know about Dogman. It is, it's my son's favorite comic book series, and it is a, a fever dream, man, of things that are happening. I don't know what's happening, but he, it's perfect for the seven-year-old brain. You know, it's about this superhero police officer who has the body of a man but the head of a dog, uh, and he solves crimes, uh, and uh, we were reading one episode, and you got it. if you get confused, don't worry, I'm, I'm always confused now. Uh, Dogman has to fight a group of tadpoles that have been infected with tainted brain medicine, which has given them telekinetic powers. They can move stuff with their minds, but when they use these powers, they get super angry, and so now they're wreaking havoc on society. And we're reading about this, and I'm, I'm going, okay. Uh, and, uh, but then, what do they find for this poison that's infecting the tadpoles? The antidote. And I read it. Uh, do we have a picture? There we go. Now, that's, Dogman's not in there. That's down at the bottom left. That's Lil Petey, his, his sidekick. Uh, I have to say it right, because I think if Hezzy walked in here, to be like, that's not his name. Uh, but he was, you see, Hezzy reads these to us every night, so he has to read them, but we help him with words. And we got to, we were making in, and we had to sound it out, antidote. And he said, what's an antidote? And so I had to uh, try to sound out a, a definition. I said, well, it's Something that gets rid of something inside someone that's making them sick. And I looked it up. I was pretty close. The actual definition, the first one I found, is a medicine taken or given to counteract a particular poison. In this scripture, John is telling us that there is an antidote to the poison of hatred and division seen in our world. And that antidote is Jesus Christ. Something happened. If you read John, if you read the Gospel of John, the letters of John, John is obsessed with the idea that something happened that cosmically changed all of reality when Jesus Christ was incarnated into our world. The game changed. This ancient poison now had a cure. He introduces this. He says, do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. That's the game changer. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Is that competition? Is that conflict? What we call that is self-sacrificial, let me try that again, self-sacrificial love. Self-sacrificial love, the love of someone that will lay down their life for us is the antithesis to competition Conflict, covetousness, corruption, and contempt. I had a few extra C's left. Uh, 
Self-sacrificial love does not look for enemies to punish or wage war on, but instead looks, even amongst those who are supposedly our enemies, it looks for brothers and sisters to love. I read to you earlier that summary from John Stott, the theologian, who said that hatred characterizes the world, whose prototype is Cain, it originates in the devil, issues in murder, and is evidence of spiritual death. Here's the second half of that summary. Love characterizes the church, whose prototype is Christ. It originates in God, issues in self-sacrifice, and is evidence of eternal life. As the church, us, as followers of Jesus, we're called to choose a life of love instead of hatred. And we do so through the transformational love of Jesus Christ. And through the power that we have through the love of Jesus, we can cure the primordial poison of hatred and division within ourselves and our society. John doesn't tell us just to recognize the love that Jesus has. He says, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. This is a call to action, this section of 1 John. But we're not called to war. We're not called to war against other humans. We're not called to join the conflicts of our culture in bitterness and interpersonal strife. We're called to resist the ways of a world steeped in hatred, a world that follows the way of Cain, to resist it through love, the self-sacrificial agape love of Jesus Christ. I'm going to close today with an example of that. Uh, What does this look like? Well, let this story maybe paint a picture. Uh, This is from a book by N.T. Wright that he wrote last year called God and the Pandemic. So he wrote this within the first few months of the coronavirus pandemic. And this, more than anything in that book, stuck out to me. He's talking about the response, he's uh, English, so the response in England to the pandemic. And he says this, in the UK, the government asked for volunteers to help the National Health Service with all the extra urgent non-specialist tasks. Half a million people signed up almost at once. So many that it was hard to find appropriate tasks for all of them. Retired doctors and nurses have come back into the front line. Some themselves caught the virus and died. They are doing what the early Christians did in times of plague. In the first few centuries of our era, when serious sickness would strike a town or city, the well-to-do would run for the hills. The Christians would stay and nurse people. Sometimes they caught the disease and died. People were astonished. What was that about? Oh, they replied, we're followers of this man, Jesus. He put his life on the line to save us, so that's what we do as well. Nobody had ever thought of doing that kind of thing before. No wonder the gospel spread. We have a choice of how we respond to the conflicts and trials of our life and those we see in the world around us. But remember that the response of Jesus in response to the immense conflicts of his time was always love. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, we just pray for the inbreaking power of your love, that love that changed all of reality, that love that you invite us into, that you invite us into and invite us to share. Pray for the presence of that love on the hearts of everyone here this morning. We pray for that love to go out with everyone this morning, out into our community, out into our world, living the lives of love that you've called us to. We thank you, Jesus. In your precious name we pray. Amen.